The two of you took this. He took it. Then he lives. You do not. My companion is modest. We both took it. Having come this far, you are a proven warrior. But for being found on our land, you must die. That is our law. Hold it. A warrior must also be given a chance to take the challenge. That is also the law. Yes? You would do well to travel with a less talkative companion. You must meet me in the pit. If you live, you will go free. No problem. You can take him. Max Minute Podcast. I'm Rick. And I'm Julia. And today we are watching Metal Storm, The Destruction of Jared Sin from 1983. It was directed by Charles Band, written by Alan J. Adler, and it stars Jeffrey Byron, Michael Preston, and Tim Thomerson. <laughs> that now, name makes me laugh a little. <laughs> it's too bad he wasn't Tom Thomerson. <laughs> That'd probably be even better. I hope like his school nickname was like tim tom (laughs) something like that i'm looking at the imdb page for our main character jeffrey byron now he's the guy that's going to be our main hero in this movie and apparently he is best known for and now i know that the known for category in imdb is dubious at best because they've got their own metrics they go by but he was the test administrator in 2009's star trek which means that he probably shows up in that Kobayashi oh, Maru scene. Yeah. Okay. I've never seen the two other movies in his top four, Dungeon Master from 1984 and Donovan's Reef from 1963. Donovan's Reef, that's a John Wayne movie. So apparently that role in Star Trek was one of his last because he's got that role in 2009 and then a role in 2015 on a TV movie called Enough About Jack. And then, of course, we are familiar with Michael Preston because we just saw him as Papagallo in The Road Warrior. Julia, you just saw the trailer for this movie. Yes, I did. How are your expectations feeling at this point? I'm expecting a B-movie crazy version of Road Warrior. I didn't get much of a sense of the storyline, except, hey, these are the good guys and, hey, these are the bad guys. Just the visuals. Explosions, car chases... There was one particular, like, someone rolled out of a car that looked very not well Mm -hmm. acted. (laughs) (laughs) Also, they're doing this in 3D thing. Yep. Which had some time in the spotlight back in the 80s. There's a reason that it went away. It wasn't good. It wasn't entertaining. Well, okay, not entertaining is a strong term. I suppose it was probably entertaining, but it just wasn't good. I think this movie is going to be focused more on the 3D mm-hmm. and like throwing things at you <laughs> than like actually good effects yeah. or actually good acting as long as they're throwing somebody through a car windshield and all that glass is spraying towards you. They're happy. Now, we are not going to be watching this in 3D. We no. have found a link to watch it on YouTube because at least two people have uploaded this entire movie to YouTube for I guess, our viewing pleasure. Neither of these are versions with the red and blue type 3D, which I'm pretty sure is how it was originally released. I did see, at some point as I was researching this, 
someone uploaded a headset VR version of this movie, which I'm sure they did something to offset it because you click on the video on YouTube and it's got a right side of the screen and a left side of the screen. So the idea is, of course, you put it into your little headset thing and you've got one screen for each eye and that's how they do the 3D VR that way. But no, we're just going to watch it straight from YouTube, not 3D or anything like that, just as it is letting the quality of the film shine through. That being said, I really don't expect this film to be quality. No, no. I expect this to be, I don't want to say hot garbage, but I'm not expecting this movie to be good. I mean, we didn't get a sense at all of the dialogue that we're going to see in this movie. We got to see a lot of quote-unquote style. They're definitely borrowing heavily from the Mad Max movies Mm -hmm. to the point that they hired Mike Preston to be the bad guy. Yep. I have a feeling that Mike Preston is not going to be as big of a part of this movie as the title would suggest. Yeah, I remember distinctly while we were watching Road Warrior, we had a conversation about naming your movie after the antagonist. Yeah, it was when we first got introduced to Papagallo. yeah, Yeah, in reference to this movie. And from what I saw of the trailer, it's poorly named. Yeah. Like, you can look at the title and you're like, okay, so this is going to end with the main character killing Jared Sin. I'm assuming. Yeah. Either that or this movie is going to be the chronicle of the main hero slowly dismantling Jared Sin's empire or something like that. Mm, I guess so. You could. I don't know. You could interpret destruction in a couple of different ways. Yes. Maybe he destroys them psychologically. Mm. Yeah, maybe they've got some sort of post-apocalyptic credit score system and he goes and steals Jared Sin's credit cards and makes a bunch of bogus charges and then destroys his credit. And that is something that will follow you around and haunt you for years and years to come. Yeah. I mean, I don't think that's actually what it's going to be, but what I expect is that the car chases will be slow, the stunts will be clumsy, I expect the costumes to be derivative and the dialogue to be stilted. I am fully prepared to tear this movie apart when we get to the end of it. Okay, that begs the question, why are we watching this movie? Because sometimes watching bad movies can be fun in and of itself. Okay. And Mike Preston is the main bad guy in it. We've got a one-to-one direct link to Road Warrior, and you get the added bonus of this being a post-apocalyptic styled movie. Okay. So that is why we are going to subject ourselves to this thing and... Have fun with it. Yeah, exactly. Because that's all you can do sometimes. We're not going to take this too seriously because I have a feeling the people who made it didn't take it too seriously. That's definitely the vibe I get. Yeah, I'm going into this with super low expectations. We may be pleasantly surprised. That's a very good point. It's like my mantra says, if you have low expectations, you can never be disappointed. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) So... For you, dear listener, we are going to play that trailer that we were just talking about, and when we come back from that, we will have watched the movie, and we will tell you what we think of it. In a future that grows ever closer, the fate of our Earth will lie in the hands of one man, a solitary warrior of great courage. His name is Doki, and he is called the Finder. His enemies will emerge from the underworld to test his strength. Yurok, the Cyclopean warlord of the One-Eyes. The assassin Baal. Half man, half machine. And Jared Sin, leader and mastermind 
of the sinister renegades. They will utilize their cruelest weapons. They will exploit their most mysterious powers. As they create an epic non-stop action adventure movie that will challenge your senses. And they will do all this for you in 3D. This summer. Metal Storm. The destruction of Jared Sin in 3D. And just like that, we're back. Wow, that uh, hour and 20-some-odd minutes just flew by, didn't it? Oh my gosh. <laughs> okay, Julia, what's your initial reaction of Metal Storm, the destruction of Jared Sin? Well, destruction isn't the right word. Nope. I mean, we'll certainly get into the ending and what is deemed a destruction, but it's not accurate. Nope. It was as bad as, as I thought it would be. Yep. I, I mean, it certainly lived up to its expectation. The YouTube video was an hour and 43 minutes. So when we got to what seemed like the final chase is a strong word. <laughs> yeah. I was like, wait a second. We have like a half an hour still to go. Something more is going to happen. And then something more didn't happen and the movie ended. I was like, wait, what? <laughs> so the, uh, the movie isn't really an hour 43. It's an hour 20 something. And there's just dead air on the last... 20, 25 minutes yeah. of the YouTube video. So the YouTube video, not the highest quality. I have a feeling that the extra 20, 30 minutes on the end has to do with uh, copyright robots and whatnot. So, Oh, like fooling them or something? Yeah, something like that. Okay. You're right. The video itself was not the highest quality. That didn't bother me. Really? Really. There were some scenes that... It was painfully obvious that it was a like poor cut or old a poor VHS. Rip. Yeah. It didn't bother me. There was enough else to bother me that the quality of the actual video didn't. If you would believe it, there actually exists a Blu-ray of this movie. Yes, it's like if, the first thing we learn. If we had taken the time to go on Amazon and order the mm. Blu-ray copy of all of these movies... First of all, that would have been money wasted. Right. I don't think. I mean, a Blu-ray of Gallipoli, yes. I would love to own Gallipoli in the highest quality possible. A Blu-ray of Metal Storm, the destruction of Jardson. No, 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 no. Technically, you could get a DVD of it for $6.66, but the Blu-ray copy is $22.93, which is... I would say $22 more than the movie is worth. Yes. <laughs> my initial reaction is that this movie was everything my expectations wanted. It was just a special thing. And when I say special, you know what kind of connotation I'm talking about. And it baffles my mind that when I went on the Wikipedia page for this movie, someone went through and they wrote possibly one of the most comprehensive plot recaps I have seen out of all of the highest movies we've done. Which is fantastic because there are parts that I need clarification on. Oh, yeah. So if somebody else did the work... 
to figure out what little things mean that felt like they came out of the blue, I would appreciate that. Do you want to get into the plot recap? I do. Because this was just, it was a pile of something. It was a pile of something. Okay, so before we get into the plot recap, I just want to say, whoever went on the Wikipedia page, thank you for putting all of this hard work into it that we are going to directly benefit from. Yeah, I do kind of feel bad that we're going to use this hard work of somebody's to help us tear this movie apart. (laughs) Because obviously, whoever wrote that all down obviously liked the movie. I would say, if they're selling a $22 Blu-ray, there are enough people out there that appreciate this movie enough to spend that kind of money on it. Okay. That makes me feel better about tearing it apart. Yeah, I don't know who those people are, because they're certainly not IMDb users, but we'll get into that after we're done with the plot. Yeah, I definitely want to make sure and talk about that. It's reviews are interesting. Yeah. So, the movie begins with our hero... Guy named Dojin. He's played by Jeffrey Byron, as I mentioned in the opener. And he is driving along through some sort of wasteland. You assume it's a wasteland because everything's made out of dirt and rock. When suddenly he's attacked by what is known as a sky bike, a one man open cockpit flying machine piloted by a nomad. So Dojin's able to shoot down this bike. He slides open the side door on his car reaches out and shoots the guy down and in amongst the crash of this nomad skybike pilot he finds a crystal and we never get a good look at this symbol because low quality rip and whatnot but apparently it's the symbol of a dead tree oh okay which now that you say that we saw the symbol more clearly in other places along in the movie So I wish we'd been able to see the symbol properly way back in the beginning. It would have created more of a narrative for me. So was it like stamped on the crystal? I guess so. There are a lot of details in this movie that you can tell that they were put in there to build a sort of mythology, a depth to this world. And because they were just small details, they didn't come through on the rip that we were watching, so I feel like we lost out there. That is definitely a downside of the quality of the video. Yeah, but later on when he's asking that one trader dude about the symbol, that's a symbol that he was talking about, the dead tree, and it's going to come back at the end. We don't get to see much after that, because the next thing we see is a couple of people in a cave, and they are mining for crystals. You've got an older man who I'm pretty sure is named Ikes, A-I-X, and he's there with his daughter, Diana, played by Kelly Preston. They are poking around, and she's very negative. Oh, there's no crystals here. But then she moves one rock and finds a big old crystal, and her dad's like, oh, we're going to be rich, hooray! And they walk outside the cave, and he's like, oh, did you hear that? And she's like, no. (laughs) And... And I said, neither did anybody else, because there was no noise. Yeah. So he's all spooked, because he heard something. He sends her back into the cave, and then these nomad dudes show up. Okay, why didn't he send her back in the cave with the priceless crystal that they just found? Keep the crystal safe, because one of the first things that happens is that the crystal gets broken. Yeah, one of the nomads walks over to the old dude, grabs the crystal, smashes it on the ground, because apparently... The crystals are valuable to some people, but not to others. Is that the sense you got as well? I guess so. Because, yeah, wouldn't the nomads also be able to sell it for massive amounts of money? Like, they're trying to 
do some world building here and make it seem like there is currency in this world. And there's one point where our hero pays for information and we never actually see the currency. So it's like, is he paying with crystals? Is there some sort of currency that is crystal based, like a bottle caps from Fallout or something like that? I don't know. I'm not quite sure. There is a distinct possibility that this cut that we were watching on YouTube also was cropped strangely so that there were aspects around the edge of the screen that we didn't see. That would explain the scene in the bar when he pays for information and we can't see what he hands over. Yeah. It was below our screen. And there were definitely some shots, like when we're supposed to be Dojin's POV as he's driving down the road, where we're seeing a lot of the ground and not much else. So that might actually be the thing. But going back to the folks in the cave, the young woman goes back in the cave. That's Diana. She hides. The dudes who roll up, the nomads, are led by a cyborg guy named Ball, played by R. David Smith. And he is made up to the nines. He really, really is. Yeah. They put a lot of their effects budget right there in that one person. He's got this weird telescoping robot arm. That shoots goo. Some kind of acid? Something like that. I don't know. Yeah. It's our first introduction to Ball and what his robot arm can do. Because he rolls up on this miner. He starts harassing him. And then his arm telescopes out and he shoots this goo all over the miner. And the miner, I want to say he either goes into some sort of trance dream state I think so. Like he's physically still outside the mine, but his consciousness is elsewhere. Because in some way, he must literally go somewhere else. Because in going somewhere else, he is able to be killed. Mm -hmm. We get our first look at Jared Sin, played by Mike Preston. Yeah, the name Jared Sin. And considering that his son, oh, Ball is Jared Sin's son. Considering his son is clearly a cyborg of some kind. I was expecting more synthetic pieces to Jared Sin. Like maybe the majority of him is now synthetic in some way. But no, he's just kind of a normal guy. Yeah, he's basically... funky hair and a funky set of armor. Yeah, it's basically Mike Preston wearing the armor from a Power Rangers TV show. Mm Mm-hmm. And he's got these crystals. Mike Preston, as Jared Sin, walks up to the miner in this weird vision thing, and he touches a crystal to the side of the miner's neck, and the miner screams and dies. And we're shown the crystal glowing or something, but yeah. it was also in Jared Sin's arm was also glowing. Like the suit was moving energy around or, or something, something like that. It could also be a reflection. I suppose it could have been a reflection. That makes sense, because... From what I could gather, the crystal absorbs the life energy of the victim, Mm. and then it is later deposited into the master crystal that we learn of, and it takes too long to learn about the master (laughs) crystal. Yeah, it does. It should have been in this scene where he immediately goes over and deposits it so that we knew, okay, life force from the victim to the master crystal This is how you move it. Yeah. Like, we should have had that information clear right away. So the minor dude is dead. Ball and his cronies peace out. And Diana is left alone in the cave. Well, who should happen to show up but our hero, Dojin, who just happens across this scene. And so he's inspecting the miner's body and Diana comes out of the cave and she is very untrusting of him. Naturally. I I thought that was very natural. 
her reaction to his arrival. Yeah. She holds a gun on him. And even when he explains, oh, I'm a ranger, I'm a finder, I'm hunting for Jared's sin, she's still very wary of him. Right. She doesn't trust him. I gather in this society, Mm -hmm. there's not much by way of organized law enforcement. So I don't think he could, like, show her a badge to put her at ease. Yeah. He didn't seem to be wearing any kind of uniform. Well, well no, he was wearing a uniform. He, he was wearing an MFP uniform. Right. Leather jacket, leather pants. Yes. Boots with the silvery metal shin guards Absolutely. like Goose used to wear. Absolutely. Like, let's be real here. He was dressed exactly like an MFP officer. Right. <laughs> but it didn't seem like he was wearing a ranger uniform or a finder class uniform. Yeah. Although... I don't think really anyone else wears that exact outfit. Maybe it is a specific type of outfit that only those specific type of people wear. He is dressed very different than everybody else. Everybody else seems to be wearing fabric that's more loose fitting. Mm -hmm, More drapey. More fitting for the environment. This is a desert environment. Yeah. You want to keep things covered loosely. Yeah. But covered. So Kelly Preston, Diana... Is holding a gun, laser gun, of course. Yep, everything's all, lasers. Everything la- is lasers because 3D effects. Lasers look great. Her stance when she's holding the gun on him, her feet are super duper wide. They are wider than her body. I say, you really want to have your feet shoulder width apart. And they were much wider than shoulder width apart. And they were evenly placed. One wasn't placed in front of the other. Knees locked. It was very bizarre looking. Yeah. And as they are going through this little meet-cute moment, Dojin explains who he is and what he does and who he's looking for. And she sees the crystal that he's showed up with, with the little, I guess, dead tree symbol on it. Okay, that was also really awkward because he's holding it, like, right next to his crotch. So we get a crotch shot looking at the crystal because this is now what she's looking at. Mm -hmm. So... (laughs) So she's looking at his crotch. Well, I mean, Jeffrey Byron isn't a bad-looking guy in this movie. No, he's not. He's not a bad-looking guy at all. He's very handsome. His clothes were ill-fitting, though. Yeah? Which we get to see him in a little while shirtless. He is ripped. He is a very, very fit man. So there's no need to put ill-fitting clothes on him thinking it's going to make him look better. It didn't. I thought it made him look kind of fat. Yeah, I didn't get that sense that the clothes were ill-fitting. Well, the jacket in particular, there was some tightness around his torso. Yeah. That made his muscles look dumpy. Okay. Yeah, that's what I mean. His jacket was so tight around the torso that it made his muscles look dumpy. Okay, I'll defer to your judgment. (laughs) And I think the same problem was happening around his thighs, too. Mm Mm-hmm. From what I can tell, he has muscular thighs, like comparing it to Mel Gibson. Mel Gibson just had like pleasantly slim thighs. They weren't like overly muscular. I think Jeffrey Byron has much more muscular thighs that maybe doesn't translate very well under skin tight leather. Okay. Yeah. It was not the right outfit for him. Gotcha. Mel Gibson looked fantastic in it, but Jeffrey Byron does not. That's fair. Anyways, everybody gets a good look at his crotch. Yep. And 
She wants to know about the crystal, but so does he. Neither of them know what this crystal or the symbol are, but Diana knows a guy. And so they hop in Dojin's car, which it's so boxy. It's like a shoebox on wheels, yeah, more or you, less. You can tell they took like a dune buggy and put a different shell on it. So they go to a guy named Zax played by Marty Zagon, who puts the crystal in some sort of testing chamber. Like, he hangs it up on a frame, shoots a laser at it, and the laser bounces around a little bit, and then he's just able to tell what kind of crystal it is. And to hear him talk about these crystals, they serve different purposes. Power, storage, those type of things. Right. I kind of imagine it like nowadays we have these small digital devices that if you don't know what it does it could do any number of things like um like an external battery it's just a case of something digital it could be a thumb drive it could be a larger storage device it could be a battery if you don't know what it does you're gonna have to examine it to find out once they know that it's a life force storage crystal, Diana's able to tell them about ancient Cyclopeans who once used such devices and says the only power against it is a magic mask located in their lost city. Oh, I missed that. Mm-hmm. Okay, things are coming <laughs> together in my head now. Yeah. <laughs> There's going to be an instance where Dojin picks up a mask later on in this movie, and we were watching it, and we were like... Did someone mention something about a mask? Is this something that's going on? It was very hard to follow. Anyway, the merchant dude, Zax, is able to confirm this story, and he tells Dojin to find a prospector named Rhodes in a nearby mining town called Zor. The name Zor, I don't think it holds any bearing. I don't think it comes up again. It's just, you know, how it is. On the way to this town, Dojin and Diana are attacked once again by this guy named Ball and his nomad cronies. And Ball is able to spray Dojin with his goo, which initially paralyzes Dojin. And I guess it also gives him a little bit of a hallucination later on. Yeah. The two times that we've seen the goo employed, the first time on Diana's father, it hit him right in the heart. Yeah. I think that's where it's most effective, where it's supposed to hit, is right in the heart. The second time with Dojin, it hit him in the leg. Ball was aiming for his heart. Diana kind of got in the way. She started shooting people. Yeah, which was awesome. Like, she just snuck up behind Dojin and started shooting people. It was great. So she kind of pushes Dojin out of the way. The goo just hits him in the leg a little yeah. bit. So while Dojin is under the effects of this goo, he sees Jared sin. And Jared tries to, I guess, pull Dojin away from Diana. Like, we see this scene set where Dojin is laid out paralyzed and Diana is holding him in her lap and she's got her arms around him. And in the vision, Dojin is lying on the ground in Diana's lap. And so as Jared goes to pull Dojin away, he can't because the two of them together, their will is too strong, apparently. And so Jared's all like, ooh, I'm going to destroy you and I'm going to separate you two and your will will be weakened. Yeah, I wish that it was made a bigger deal of that together they are super strong and separated they are weaker. Yeah. Like, you know, the power of love and or something like that. Yeah. I don't know. Something. A little more mythology. It could have been a part of the mythology that when two people feel a connection, it makes them stronger against the outside forces of the world. Yeah, there's something really like that. Not a lot explained about the goo and the psychic connection or something like that. It's all left very vague. Right. But once 
Dojin wakes up, he turns around, looks over at Diana, and he's like, hi. And she's like, that's all you have to say. I've been holding you for hours. And he's like, I wish I was awake for that. And he's like, we need to stay together. And she's like, make out time. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, I know I just said that a bigger deal should be made about their connection, but it was just a really cheesy couple of lines. (laughs) And it could have been done so much nicer. Yeah. Do you remember the line that... Zach's said before they left his cave to go off and do stuff. The thing about the stubborn woman. Oh, oh, that was pretty great. Dojin asks Zach's, hey, can Diana stay here? And Zach's is like, oh, I don't know. I was married to a stubborn woman once and she, I don't know, did something. She stole his crystals and left him alone. Yes. So Dojin turns to Diana and says, are you a stubborn woman? And Diana something like let's find out or something cheesy yeah it was really cute up until her replying line that just yeah. made it cheesy like the line it itself <laughs> it was yeah close but just yeah I feel like if they had chosen a different phrase for her answer but it, i really like this little conversation about oh i know this type of woman this type of woman is strong-willed and you can't make her stay if she doesn't want to i enjoyed that because Diana is not useless. No. She shoots the gun plenty and helps out plenty. She's about to go out kind of like a chump, but that's the exception right. to the things that she has done before now. Mm-hmm. So Jared's method of separating these two is he uses some sort of magic, I guess, to teleport Diana away, which it's never explained how or why it <sighs> just is. And it happened very bizarrely in the film. So they kiss and they separate and they have a nice little look. And then immediately, immediately, she starts to, I don't know, look uncomfortable or worried or something and starts to back away from him and keeps backing away and backing away until she's up against the rock. And that's when she starts to like glow and disappear or something. Mm -hmm. So I kind of got the sense that he couldn't teleport her away while she was physically connected to Dojin. So maybe he psychically got her to feel uncomfortable in some way so that she would pull away and move away from him. Now they are separated and Jared Sin can grab Diana. Yeah, I don't know. It's not made clear, but the whole power of the two of them connected together lasts for like 30 seconds. It's yeah. done. It's gone. So she shows up in Jared Sin's lair and he's got this little figurine in his hand and he's like, haha, I'm going to kill your boyfriend. And Dojin's back at the campsite and suddenly this giant, I guess, robo-electricity monster shows up and starts doing really slow, clumsy Star Trek swings at him. Which kind of makes sense to me that he was so clumsy and kind of dumb because I think he was a golem crossed with a voodoo doll. Okay. So I don't think he had any intelligence of his own. He was brought to life and being controlled by this figurine and Jared Sin's magic. Yeah. So Dojin tries throwing a rock at it. Doesn't work. And then he shoots the ground and a little wellspring pops up. And when the monster steps in that little bit of water, it shorts out and disappears. Yeah, which makes no sense. Mm -hmm. I mean, the shorting out, fine. But shooting the ground in just a random place and a water spring popping up. (laughs) 
doesn't work that way. Nope, but it does in this movie, apparently. Yes, it does. Now that he's all alone, Dojin continues off to Zor, the little mining town, and he goes into a bar, and he goes up to the bar, and apparently he's had dealings with the bartender before. I think her name is Anne. Does that sound right? Yeah, it was Anne. Okay. The actress's name was Mickey Fox, but she's behind the counter and she's bartending and whatnot. And he's like, hey, Anne, I need information. She's like, you need to pay me for the information. And they exchange currency and she's like, the guy you want to find, guy named Rhodes, he's just sitting over there at that table. And it's Tim Thomerson. It's Tim Tom. Yep. Now, Rhodes is, I guess, a washed up soldier. He's a guy who was once a seeker or a finder finder. or whatever they're called. (laughs) finder yeah (laughs) and he's just in the bar at his table drinking and dojin walks up to him he's like hey i need to find the lost city of the cyclopses and rhodes is like what why and i don't feel like it's very well explained as to why they start working together i think dojin's like take me rhodes is like no and then dojin goes outside and there's a showdown Yes. Okay, the showdown was really awkward, and I didn't really understand why the showdown happened. Like, there was these couple of guys who were beating up a third guy. I think he, the third guy was a nomad soldier. I think oh, he okay. might have been, like, a cyclops So or there something. was some racism going on here. Good old-fashioned racism. So Dojin kneels down to... I guess untie him? He looked like he was tied up. Check on him on some way. I mean, he could have been kneeling down to rob him for all we knew. Right. Hold B to loot. Yeah. So the two attackers seem to take offense to this. And there's a whole like classic Western showdown Mm -hmm. scene with intense staring and checking back and forth and the unsnapping of the holster so that your gun is available. Like (laughs) it was strong on the Western front. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So it's two against one, Dojin being the one. And he takes out one guy who I have to say was also quite handsome. (laughs) And he is perilously close to being taken out by the second attacker. Mm-hmm. And Rhodes comes out, shoots the second attacker. So I guess my interpretation is that Rhodes is impressed by Dojin's pluck. Said, okay, if you're willing to help this defenseless guy who's being discriminated against, and you're also able to defend yourself, you have those skills, then okay, I guess I'll come with you. But that's not clear. No, it's not. Mostly because it's not clear why Dojin knelt down next to the nomad victim. Like, why get involved in the first place? Yeah, he didn't stop the beating. It had already naturally stopped by itself by the time he got out there. So it's not like he stood up for anybody. It just wasn't really clear what was happening at all. Rhodes jumps into Dojin's car and they drive off into Cyclopean territory. At some point, they have to stop and get out and walk on foot. And they're walking through this very sandy area. And, oh, the walking in this movie. There's a lot of it. Considering it's such a short movie, we spend a lot of time watching people traverse various spaces in various ways. But as they're walking through this sandy area, I guess this is supposed to be the lost city that they're walking through. But there are these uh, sand snakes that trap them in these little quicksand areas and then pop out of the ground to bite them. It actually reminded me of... The YouTube guy who does science-y type experiments who recently did one with the bubbles in the sand. And if you get the bubbles at just the right pace, it makes sand like a liquid. 
Mm-hmm. It kind of reminded me of that. Like the worms are moving around in such a way that softens up the sand and gets it moving in order to trap their victims. Yeah, you're thinking of Mark Rober. I think he did a couple videos on the subject and I know there's a name for it. I just can't remember what it is. It shows you how to do it. And he did it with uh, an old hot tub. So he made a big, big pit of sand that when you turn on the air... It's like a hot tub. Yeah. If you have a source of air underneath a section of sand and then pump air into it and the air needs to travel up and it pushes the sand around in such a way that it just behaves like a liquid. It's like what they do in grain silos. Pump a lot of air into the bottom and then the grain drains out. It's science. I don't know. Go on YouTube. Look it up. (laughs) So this whole situation reminded me of that. I felt like the worms were like softening up the ground or something purposely creating a trap for the two of them well the sandworms certainly looked uh like sock puppets i'll tell you that much yeah they did once they escaped from the sock puppets though which was remarkably easy they just shot it and then the whole thing stopped and they were able to just like step out of the sand that they were knee deep into the fog lifts and they see this giant statue Was defeating the sandworm some sort of test? I don't know. Because it certainly seems like once they defeated them, they were shown this, maybe an altar Whatever it was, Dojin walked up to it, lifted one panel, and inside was a crystal mask. Not Uh, a crystal skull. Right. A crystal mask. You say crystal, I say plastic. (laughs) (laughs) Well, as far as production was concerned, it was made out of plastic. (laughs) But the idea is that it was a crystal mask. And this is the one that was mentioned by Diana back in the original cave. Still not exactly sure what purpose it serves, other than the fact that it's magic. Well, I think, was it Diana that said that that mask can defeat the life energy storing crystals honestly i can't even keep it straight and i've been reading the synopsis after watching the movie okay and i still don't understand it, why this mask is important oh it frustrates me because there are bits of interesting mythology here lots of them mm-hmm. lots and lots of them they're just not communicated well no And there's not really a consistency. It disappoints me because it could have been a more interesting movie. After they get the mask, they are found by a bunch of cycloptic nomads. And their leader is a guy named Hurok, played by Richard Maul. Which took me a little while, but I made the connection. He's the bailiff from Night Court. Which I've never watched Night Court. Oh, Night Court's fun. I'm not sure it's one of those shows that I would like go back and binge all of the episodes. Mm. But if there was a list that existed, and I'm sure there is, of like their top 10 episodes, I would definitely go back and like watch the best of. Night Court was definitely from the 80s. John Larroquette was in it. It was good. Let's see. He was in an episode of Remington Steel. Yeah. Richard Maul, he played the bailiff, like I said. Kind of big and dumb. Yeah. Dumb is a strong word, maybe dim. Mm-hmm. But, you know, a little simple. Yeah. I, yeah. He was in a lot of late 80s television. His acting in this movie was a high point. The interactions, which actually, now that I think back to it, is he the guy that we saw way, 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 way back in the beginning? And I made a comment about this is our humongous character because he's kind of deformed i don't think he's deformed because i think that's how their people are yeah that was the guy deformity that was the guy at the beginning yeah Yeah. and actually i made the comment that this is the humongous of the movie 
I think it's more this is more of a Wes caricature mm-hmm. than Humongous. Interesting thing about Richard Mall in 1993, he played a prison attendant in the movie Loaded Weapon. One Loaded Weapon was a buddy cop movie from National Lampoon starring Emilio Estevez and Sam L. Jackson. Really? Yeah. I'm huh. pretty sure it's the National Lampoon answer to Lethal Weapon. Never oh. actually seen it, but... We haven't gotten to the Lethal Weapon moment, have we? Yet. We can't forget about that. I'm pretty sure it happens on the way to them running into the Cyclopses. Oh, okay. So we'll cut back to that just real quick. They're going through some trouble, like some chasing... Like they're driving. Yeah, they're driving. And Rhodes, once they clear the trouble, Rhodes says, I'm getting too old for this stuff. And you were like, haha, Lethal Weapon. Yes. So we looked it up and this happened years before Lethal Weapon came out. Yep. So who copied who? I don't don't know. I don't think anybody copied this movie because I'm not sure anybody saw this movie. Right. Who would then go on to write another movie. So they run into the Cyclopses and the leader, Hurok sees Dojin with the mask and he's like, did you take this? And Rhodes pipes up and says, he took it. And so Hurok's like, all right, he will live. You extra person will die. And Dojin's like, okay, my buddy's being modest. He took it too. <laughs> and they're like... Okay, that that was a pretty good. I liked that. And so Hurok's like, for finding the mask, you don't die, but at the same time, you are invading our lands, so you have to die? It was really not right. clear. There's conflicting sentences. They invaded their territory, which means death, But he also was able to claim the mask, which I felt was kind of like a sword in the stone type situation where he was found worthy to take the mask. Therefore, he earns the right to be spared. So those two conflicting sentences means he's got to go to, you know, uh, an arena that that may or may not be covered in some kind of a dome. Oh, it was it was a pit. It was a hole in the ground. So He's making a Thunderdome joke. Harak is like, you need to die because you trespassed on our sacred lands. And Rhodes is like, nah, Dojin can fight for freedom. And Dojin's like, gee, thanks. And so in a hole in the ground, Dojin and Harak, they get these, I think they're called size. They're the pokey weapons that one of the Ninja Turtles use. They've got one of those in one hand and they have to hold on to a rope in the other hand. And that rope is keeping them close by together. I wish we could make a Thunderdome reference, but But this is just so bad. (laughs) This was an opportunity to make a cool scene. Yeah. They could have had a cool fight, but they don't. So size are basically poking weapons. They're not slashing weapons. And so the fight is a lot of them pushing against each other. Uh Uh-huh. With the size touching. And I think Hurok only makes one big thrust one time, and there's a little bit of tumbling that happens, and then Dojin winds up with his side pressed against Hurok's neck. Like, it's a very boring fight. It is, and it, it thank goodness it doesn't last that long. It's fairly quick. But Hurok's defeat is shameful. His reaction to nearly dying is just, he doesn't... He doesn't find any glory in fighting or dying in the pit. Like he's not Klingon enough? Yeah, yeah, he's not Klingon enough. Like if you're going to have a, okay, we'll settle this in the pit kind of society, then dying in the pit should be a glorious thing. Yeah, instead, Dojin pins him 
And Hurok's like, hey, you win. You got to kill me now. And Dojin's like, I won't kill you. And Hurok's like, you're my best friend. Yeah. And he like sighs in relief. I think it was the sigh of relief that kind of bothered me. Yeah. Like. Like we need some oh. Star Trek Klingons in this movie. Yeah. Like toughen up a little bit. Yeah. With better weapons. <laughs> Imagine gosh. if this fight had happened with Hurok being more Klingon-like and them using those. Oh, Batleths? Yes. That would have been amazing. Yeah, that would have actually been good. <laughs> no such luck for us. No, it's no such luck at all. It's at this point that my plot summary cuts back to Jared Sin's lair, where he is there talking to Diana, and he explains to her this whole thing about the crystal steel life, and they go into a huge crystal, and he shows her his big crystal, and it starts glowing, and there's this awful, like, wailing noise that comes out of the crystal because there are souls inside. And he's like, this is, this is my awesome power source, and I'm going to rule the world. And she's like, my warrior is going to come help me. Yeah, she does make a great little comment about her dad being in there, too. Mm -hmm. And then Jared Sin actually makes a pretty good comment back. He's like, yeah, like your dad. <laughs> Now, is this the scene, it's either this interaction between the two of them, or it's a later interaction after Jared Sin's son comes back to the cave, but she's brought to Jared Sin, Diana is, and she grabs a knife out of someone's belt and she tries to stab Jared Sin. I think it's when Baal comes back. Yeah, so it's after a scene that we're going to talk yeah. about after this. But it's another awesome Diana moment in uh -huh. which she's not just a damsel tied to a railroad yes. line. <laughs> like I said, Dojin and Rhodes have left the Cyclopses and they are driving, I guess, towards Jared Sin, I guess. Um, the Cyclopses oh, point them in a general direction. That's right. And then they, they just go. Yes. It's interesting, the group of Cyclopses are actually going to Jared Sin as well, because Jared Sin is like a tribal leader type. Yeah. So they are going to him because that's what they're supposed to do. But Hurok says to Dojin, you are an honorable man, we are both going to the same place, but not for the same reason, we cannot share a path. Mm -hmm. We can't go together. Yeah. But that's where he points to a mountain, which is really just an outcropping of rock, but points to a mountain says that's where they are. Yeah. So I appreciated that, that they were friendly towards each other, but their opposite goals didn't affect their friendship. Yeah. It was like two completely separate issues. So I'm going to read straight from the plot summary here. Elsewhere, Dojin and Rhodes assault Ball's encampment and a chase ensues. Dojin evades them and stops to rest at a lake. This assault scene. Oh, I thought... That it wasn't an assault. I thought they came upon them on accident. Yeah. They're like, they routed the corner and goes, whoops. Yeah. It's the camp. And. Guess we have to run from them now. There's a lot of driving around in circles and Rhodes is shooting his laser gun at everything. Yeah. And... There were definitely some moments when Yakety Sack should have been playing. Oh, yeah. I know that we complain about sped up footage. In those scenes where it just looks ridiculous, but if they had just sped up the footage a little bit, it would have made this scene a bit more, oh, I don't know, exciting? Yeah. I'm not sure there are any scenes in this entire movie that I would classify as exciting. Mm-hmm. 
in the course of this chase, I would say that most of the enemy cars are taken out by oh. either stupidity or other bad guys taking out their friends yep. by accident. And every one of them is like an epic explosion. Oh, yeah. I'm pretty sure everything in this world is powered by crystals. And to see these cars explode, maybe crystals aren't the best power source. Right. Because they seem very volatile. There yes. is one car that goes off the road, rolls maybe like once, and then explodes. Like, it could be fine. It could keep driving. But no, it just blows up. Yeah. Kind of crazy. So they stop to rest beside a lake, I guess. And Dojin looks over the mask. And he decides, okay, I guess it's a mask. You put it on your face, so I'll put it on my face. And So putting on the mask transports him into a dream world, I guess. And he's there, and he's shirtless, and he's got an axe. And maybe I should read the text. Uh, that, it says, in his hand, he finds an axe and hacks into the tree. Because in front of him is a tree. Ah. The tree moans like the crystal in Sin's camp and trickles a stream of blood. Dojin pulls the mask off his face and finds himself back with Rhodes. Okay. I like the continuation of the tree imagery. Mm -hmm. Could have been stronger, but I really like that the tree comes up now in a vision. But I, before now, I haven't seen the tree symbol as inherently bad. I saw the tree symbol more as like an ancient symbol of these people. But if he is to destroy the tree, that kind of connects the tree to bad things, you must stop it. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I'm not yeah, even going to touch that one because it's all just weird. <laughs> After Dojin has his little spirit vision from the mask, Ball shows up and tries to spray his goo all over Dojin, and it doesn't really work out. Ball's arm is ripped off by Dojin. Yeah. Which is... Which was done very awkwardly. Ah, uh, it's a scene that they really tried to make look epic. Yep, slow-moed it. Mm-hmm. It's like Dojin was trying to do the move where he backs himself into ball and then takes his arm and tries to flip his whole body over his shoulder like a judo throw yeah that's what it looks like he's trying to do but instead of doing that like he accidentally rips ball's arm off instead you gotta wonder was he purposely trying to rip and that's the way he decided to do it or was he trying to throw him and that's the side effect yeah it was, I don't know. It just, I don't know. It just wasn't good. Ball and his cronies end up running away. Rhodes has to be left behind because in the fight he had this weird spiky frisbee thing thrown at his face and it didn't end well for him. He no. like got cut up and bloody and all that stuff. But I mean, he was fine enough that he could be left alone, but he wasn't fine enough to keep going with Dojin. Which I really appreciate that because what they didn't say is that he probably has a concussion from this big metal thing hitting his head. Then he fell down, probably hit his head again. So while Dojin is checking on him, Rhodes doesn't move. He doesn't get up. He's just going to lay there for a little while and like collect himself and take it easy and take it slow like you're supposed to. So you appreciate his recognition that you're not supposed to run around with a head injury? Yeah. 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 <laughs> so Rhodes is left behind. Dojin keeps going. And Dojin follows Ball's, I guess, goo trail. That's right. He's leaking goo. All the way back to the camp. Yeah. And so it's at that point we cut into the cave with Jared Sin and he's talking to Ball and Ball's like, oh, dad, he's going to hurt us. Hey, he's a bad guy. And Diana tries to stab Jared with a knife and it's this whole thing. And 
We go outside for, I guess, what is supposed to be the final showdown. Jared's next to his giant glowing crystal, and he's like, ha!" And then Dojin just walks up out of nowhere. And he's like, hey, Jared, I'm here to fight you. And Jared's like, cronies, attack. And Hurok's there as one of Jared's cronies. And he's like, no, Dojin's my friend. <laughs> and Ball's like, no, we need to kill him. And it's like... Everyone's just standing around talking, and then Jared's like, hey, everybody here listening, Jared Sin says that you're all going to be kings of this land, but he's going to be the only king. He wants to use the power of the crystal to enslave all of you, and Jared's like, nuh-uh, and Dojin's like, uh-huh, and they just go back and forth like that, and I don't even, I don't even understand how it comes to the point where Hurok believes Dojin over Sin. I mean... Let's see, what is, it says here, Dojin tells the nomads that Sin is a liar who wants their land so he can enslave them. The crowd murmurs with anger, but Sin shouts that they are all too late, and he activates the crystal and summons a blast of energy which stuns the crowd. There we go. Okay. So, Jared Sin is up there on a hill. He's shooting lasers with the giant crystal. Dojin is blocking the lasers with a mask, the same crystal mask he's been using. It's just really boring. Yeah. It is. In the course of the fighting, Hurok kills Ball, and Jared's all sad about that. And then Jared does this thing where he teleports himself onto a sky bike, which was really hard to follow. And then Dojin jumps on a sky bike, and the two of them have what can loosely be described as a chase, but it's really just what feels like a good five to ten minutes of just helicopter footage with them superimposed over the top of it. Okay, listeners... I have a confession to make. I fell asleep mm-hmm. during this final quote unquote chase. Because nothing happened. Because nothing's happening. And Rick tapped my arm and said, Are you asleep? I said, Yeah. And I'm like, Well, did anything happen like in the last few minutes? Like I saw them on the bikes chasing through the desert. Did anything happen? He's no. I'm like, All right then. Yeah. Towards the end of this quote-unquote chase, Jared does something where he opens up a, I want to say, portal, and then they fly through some sort of kaleidoscope thing, and then Jared disappears somehow, and Dojin is plopped back into his world. Yeah. And the skybike chase is over. Yeah, not even at the place the portal opened. He gets plopped back with the group of people that he left. Yeah. So he's back at the nomad camp, and Dojin's like, Sin's escaped, and he's in another dimension. And it says here, Hurok states that he may return in another place in time, and Dojin swears that he will be waiting for him, and then destroys Sin's soul crystal with his pistol. My gosh, this was so confusing. Yeah. Okay, so if you are bound and determined to destroy Jared Sin in whatever dimension he lands in, well, shouldn't you then go into that portal and try and follow him and try and find him in the many dimensions that exist? Yeah, because he basically said, I will continue to hunt Jared Sin, and then he destroys the power source, which was full of souls, which I don't know if it was ever a possibility of those souls being restored, but it won't happen now because he destroys the crystal. Right. And... Why was that crystal so easily destroyed? It was a simple laser gun. Yeah. I don't know. There's some sort of crystal science that is happening in this universe that... 
we will never understand. We will never understand. So... At the end of the movie, Dojin and Diana are walking along the side of the road. This was a pretty good ending. Yeah. All things considered. And Rhodes comes up in Dojin's car, and basically, they're just all friends hanging out in Dojin's car at the end, and they, you know, drive off towards town, I guess. I don't know. Yeah. And that's how it ends. That's how it ends. This movie was awful. <laughs> it was so bad. It was so bad. Okay. IMDb has 32 user reviews, 27 critic reviews. The average of all of those reviews, based on people clicking on ratings over 1,300 times, is a 3.7 out of 10. I guess I'm okay with that. It might mm. be a little generous for my taste. Over on the Amazon page for the Metal Storm Blu-ray player, 66 people have given their reviews. And I don't think they're all written reviews. I think they might just be some people clicking on stars. Do you want to guess what the average rating for this movie is on Amazon? I'm going to guess like 2 or 3. 3.8 out of 5. What? No. 45% of people that reviewed the Blu-ray gave it a five-star review. Okay, that's because only the people who are into this movie in, in some way or another are going to go to the Blu-ray and rate it. Now, granted, it is a 3D Blu-ray. So if you have a 3D television and a 3D Blu-ray player, I'm sure it works just fine. But there are a lot of differing opinions about this movie. Mm-hmm. One star reviews include someone who said, I did expect a little better, but should know better. <laughs> they say, I knew it would be a B movie, not an F movie, using handheld camera. I did expect a little better, but should have known better. Buy at your own risk. Another person calls it a quaint collectible. Another one says, one of the worst science fiction films of all time. Now that's all the one star reviews. The five star reviews are a bit different. For instance, there's one person that says, this is one of those movies you loved as a kid, and all these years later you watch it again only to realize it's just about the goofiest thing you've ever seen. Still, it's a guilty pleasure, and it's nice to see it finally get a proper widescreen release with a very good documentary as an extra, which I thoroughly enjoyed. It was worth the price of the set alone. Glad I picked this up. That is someone thoroughly blinded by nostalgia glasses. Which is valid. Nostalgia glasses are mm -hmm. valid. If you like it, you like it. I don't care why. I mean, here's one person who gave it five stars. They said it was cheesy and dated, but the product was perfect, which means that all they care about are the condition of the discs when they show up, Ugh. and apparently not much else. Okay. It was, it was certainly a thing. It was. Was there anything in this movie that stood out to you as like, one thing that you really enjoyed that you could dare say was your favorite thing? Ooh. I guess a couple of small, tiny little things. There were little nuggets of good dialogue, mm -hmm. which I think I pointed out my favorites during the recap with the stubborn woman comments. Those were nice and fun. The scene with Rhodes after he got hurt, those lines were kind of fun. Saying things like, oh, you don't have to talk so loud and, and stuff like that. That was kind of fun. So there were little nuggets throughout of good dialogue. And and Richard Mull's acting as Harak. Yeah. Harak. Harak. His acting was phenomenal. It was, yeah, it, it was <laughs> highlight of the movie. How about you? I might have to go with just my favorite thing was how committed the actors were to the story. Like, they were in just an 
awful situation. And I found Jeffrey Byron to be very earnest in his portrayal. I thought Kelly Preston was an excellent portrayal of a woman who refused to simply be a damsel. I thought Tim Thomerson was really good as Rhodes. I feel like him and Jeffrey Byron worked together really well. They are putting in performances that are unworthy of this caliber of movie. Like, you could see them in something with a higher budget and a better written story and better cameras and better lights. There were really good script moments, but overall, passable. <laughs> yeah. As in, I could pass this. For yeah. Sure. Yeah. What stood out to you as your least favorite thing? Oh, jeez. The so-called exciting chases were not exciting and not chases. Mm -hmm. I kind of feel like, you know, we've had a lot of experience over this last year analyzing chase scenes. And in particular, we've had the two that stand out to me is Mad Max number one, the Knight Rider's opening chase. Mm -hmm. And the Road Warrior, the closing chase with the rig. Those two stand out to me as just... Excellent examples of car chases that are very exciting and do a great deal for the plot. The opening chase of this scene, not a chase, just one guy driving through the desert with no reason that he's driving through the desert, no reason for him to be reckless or be driving fast. He has no motivation. Is he going somewhere? Does he have a time frame that he has to be somewhere? We don't know. And then eventually something happens. Eventually... There's the sky bike that comes into the picture. It's just crappy. And then the same thing for the closing chase, where, yes, it's a chase. There are two people involved, technically, but there's no interaction between the two. There's not even interaction between them and the ground. Yeah. It's, it, they're just... Oh, you can't... They're just so bad. You can't film two people on vehicles, and just because one person is following the other person... That's not what a chase is constituted of. Yeah. A chase has to be made up of interactions, of moves, of situations where people are making gambits. You think of the opening chase in Road Warrior, which I think they were trying to parrot that here. When we open up on Road Warrior, Max is driving away from Raiders. We don't know where Max is going. We don't know why Max is running away from these people, but we know that he's trying to get away. This chase that's happening between Max and the Raiders, it's interesting to watch because you've got Raiders coming up alongside Max. You've got them moving around. They're trying to shoot at each other. He's outmaneuvering them. Yeah. There are interactions and different steps, like a dance. Yes. There yeah. are steps to the dance that they are following, and it is interesting to watch. You start with the opening chase in this movie. Dojin, who we haven't even met yet, he's wearing a helmet, is just driving through the desert. Skybike comes up, shoots at him a little bit. Dojin shoots back. Skybike crashes. There's no rhyme or reason to it. It's just two people following each other, and one of them happens to be shooting at the other. Yeah. I understand... That they needed to start the movie by getting one of those little red crystals into Dojin's hands. So that he now has a quest to find out what it is. It looks dangerous. What is it? It could have been done so much faster. Mm -hmm. And so much more succinctly. Or so much more excitingly. It was just done so badly. Yeah. One thing that they could have done to improve this scene. Instead of start out with Dojin wandering and then suddenly attacked. Maybe start us without the wandering part. Just start... Start us in the middle of the attack. Right. Start us with Dojin driving through the desert, being actively pursued and shot at by the Skybike immediately. 
Yes. Cut out that starting part. Like that one small change would improve that scene because it's short. Yeah. You know? He shoots that guy down very quickly. Yeah. And having the helmet on, I kind of like the idea of doing that entire first chase without being able to see the hero's face. Right. Because he, he, he's very handsome. So saving the reveal of how handsome he is, save it till after he's shown us that he's a badass. Kind of like the first Mad Max movie. Exactly. Have him shoot down the thing, get out of his car, and then take his helmet off. And it would have been much more of a minor hero shot. Right. Like, we've watched him do something cool. Now look how good looking he is. Yeah. And it would have been less expensive for the production. It, it wouldn't have cost them more money. It would have cost them less money. Before I'm done talking about the things I like the least, there is one bone I want to pick. The name of the movie. Metal Storm, the, the destruction, destruction of Jared Sin. Of Jared Sin. Jared Sin is not destroyed he in runs this away. movie. Yes, he escapes. And apparently he is prevented from ever coming back to this world. But he is still out there. In whatever dimensions exist, he is still out there wreaking havoc in whatever, wherever. Yeah. Do you think Jared Sin went through that portal, traveled through space and time, and wound up in like 1970s Melbourne or 1970s Sydney and became a energy company magnate. <laughs> Changed I, his name. I think it's entirely possible. I also wonder if he's a native to that land, if to that planet. Like if he's able to transportalize himself. I don't know. I'm making up. You're if, making up if, words. If this movie can make up crazy plot points like that, I can make up weird words like transportalize himself. Okay. To your question, I think that we've been shown that he can go to other dimensions. Who's to say he is from this dimension? But yeah, he doesn't get destroyed. Nope, not destroyed. His plan gets destroyed. His giant crystal gets destroyed. His son gets destroyed. Mm -hmm. But he himself, the namesake of the movie, does not get destroyed. So, false advertising on their part. Yes. My least favorite thing about this movie has to be the cinematography. The way this movie is shot. Because, oh boy, I should say it's the cinematography and the pacing. But there are shots in this movie where the angle is off or where you think the camera should be pointing. The camera is not pointing. I just was watching this movie and it was not enjoyable to look at. I feel like when you have a movie, you should be able to hold people's attention on the screen, give them interesting things to look at. And that's not the case for this movie. I did not like it. No, not at all. You pointed out earlier on the opening chase scene, we're looking from Dojin's point of view, but all we're looking at is the ground. Right. When if they had just tilted the camera up a little bit, we could have been looking at the interesting scenery passing by. Yeah. Because while this is like a desert wasteland, there's lots of mostly rocks. Yeah, the cinematographer in this movie does not convey speed well. No. Not at all. A different way that they could have done that particular drive was to do the George Miller thing and bring the camera lower down to the ground. Yeah. Would have accentuated the speed. And yes, we mostly would have been looking at the ground, but it would have been from an interesting point of view rather than driver of the car height. Mm-hmm. Like, they needed Dean Semler oh, on they this. Did. They he would have really been able did. to give a sense of kinetic energy. This movie drags so much. Yeah, which is, I mean, it's such a short movie. 
barely feature length. Yeah. (laughs) If feature length is 90 minutes, barely feature length. Yeah. The action, like the storyline stops at an hour 16. And then the credits bring it up to, I think, 123, hour 23 minutes. Mm -hmm. They just could have cut out the travel all of the watching people walk oh yeah and watch just watching people drive around use that time to solidify the mythology that they're working with because like i said earlier there is some interesting stuff there that could have been used much better yeah it's it's a bad movie it's a bad movie do you have any final thoughts before we part ways? Uh, I think I have said everything that I needed to say. Yeah. Given the nature of this film, can you think of any other in the same vein that you could recommend? Like, Yeah. Road Warrior. <laughs> Considering that this is pretty much a Road Warrior ripoff. Yeah. Road Warrior is in the same vein, but done right. The only thing that is like really, really strong in... Metal Storm that's not included in Road Warrior is the magic element Mm -hmm. and the supernatural element. Other than that, they're very similar. Just one is done poorly and one is done very well. Yeah. If someone was thinking about watching Metal Storm, obviously the easy thing, watch Road Warrior instead. The movie that I thought to recommend instead of Metal Storm, Mm -hmm. Flash Gordon. Yeah. You get the high fantasy, the lasers, the the crazy creatures. There's no cyclopses, but you get Hawkmen. Yeah. I know it's a little late. If you already sat down and watched Metal Storm with us, I'm sorry. I can't help you. We did that to ourselves because we said that we were going to watch this movie before we actually sat down and watched this movie. (laughs) But if you want a good palate cleanser, run out and watch Flash Gordon. That's going to be a good time. Yeah, that's a really good idea. I almost feel like maybe we should go downstairs and watch Flash (laughs) Gordon. I knew that this was going to be a bad movie. I just didn't realize how bad it was. And I think we might be getting a little harsh on it. We might not be giving it the credit that it's due. There are obviously people that love this movie, but I just can't get behind it. And it makes me really glad that the next time we sit down for a hiatus episode, we are going to be watching a movie with actual writers and an actual budget and big names to it. And I am very much looking forward to that. <laughs> for sure. The Mad Max Minute Podcast is a fan project by Rick and Julia Ingham. The Mad Max franchise was created by George Miller and Byron Kennedy and presented by Warner Brothers Pictures in association with Village Roadshow Pictures. Metal Storm, The Destruction of Jared Sin is presented by Albert Band International Productions Incorporated in association with Hollywood Films. Mad Max Minute is produced and edited by Rick Ingham. Our opening music is by Daniel Batista of DanielBatista.com. You can follow Mad Max Minute on Twitter at Mad Max Minute, on Facebook at Mad Max Minute Beyond Microphone, and at MadMaxMinute.com. And finally, if you would like to contribute to the podcast, visit MadMaxMinute.com, click on the support link at the top of the page, and check out our Patreon to help us keep the tanks full. Thank you for joining us for our review of Metal Storm, The Destruction of Jared Sid. See you next time. Thank you.